welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the creator and the created. We'll think about spiritual and other links between abstract and real creations and the creators. Who or what creates? When is the individual significant and when not? How is talent produced in society? Are there geniuses only in the arts? Are there ideas in sciences or concepts in arts? Who has authored the many jokes that abound? Is property always an expression of the self? What is intellectual property? Who was a thinker? Could another have written Bob Dylan songs? When were you last moved by a work? What is the future of plagiarism? And might there be a future world without authors? We are pleased and privileged to have three cent talkers with us here today. Dr. Arun Nair, he is an associate professor at IIT Bombay. His research is primarily in 19th and 20th century Western philosophy. Professor Lawrence Liang, he is a professor at Ambedkar University in Delhi. He is broadly interested in the overlap areas between law, culture and technology. And Rabbi Shergil, he is a singer-songwriter and is based in Delhi. He agrees most with the description of being called an urban balladeer. So, uh, Lawrence, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Because you said somewhat at the intersection of many of these themes that we're probably going to touch upon in this conversation. What is an author for you? Or from a legal standpoint, um, can you problematize it for us in various contexts, not just in the context of like a book, but in the context of a text, more generally speaking? We'll start there and see where we go. So in a commonsensical term, everyone presumes to know who or what an author is. So you can say that J.K. Rowling is the author of the Harry Potter books. And that's kind of seemingly intelligible to us. But if you had to locate this in a kind of slightly historical fashion and ask, was this always the case that an individual could be identified as the creator of a work or in this case, specifically as an author? Uh, the answer seems to be more ambiguous because there were many traditions of creation that existed without the need for an individuated or an identified individual as an author. Uh, and a good example, of course, is something like jokes, as you, you mentioned. So at what point of time then does the author emerge? Uh, and here I think there's a lot to do in a way with the history of technology, which is until the print revolution came onto the scene, there really wasn't the need for an individuated author serving the kind of role that it does. And this has to do with print and the print technology and not the written form because that has pre-existed. That's, that's so always it's, it's existed. It's not about yeah, oral yeah. versus written tradition. No. So an idea of a name being associated with a work existed for a much longer time. But in terms of the modern function of what it meant to be an author, specifically with, with law, was actually to establish proprietorial boundaries. So it's with the emergence of the print revolution that suddenly you have two things happening interestingly. One is 
philosophically at that point of time, there's also a response to what many people perceived as, you know, the the excesses of the Industrial Revolution. So in literature, you have, for example, the Romantic Movement. Right? Mm. So you have all of this massive churning that's happening in terms of the cities, and you have the emergence of people like Wordsworth who are retreating and claiming that, you know, um, that you have to fight against the commodification of life, including with the print revolution, the commodification of products of knowledge and of, of creativity. And one of that was their turn to the idea of what is known as the Romantic genius. Right. Uh, so the idea of a romantic genius as a very particular instance of the articulation of a concept of authorship, which is someone who creates something out of nothing. And that has been very crucial in, in a way in kind of installing one version of the creator and one version of authorship as far as the law is concerned. And in this case, the author is some kind of a benefactor of some divine inspiration or something of that nature, because what what is nothing? Exactly. So, so if you take even, if one were to take, for example, creation myths, yeah. there are all kinds of creation myths. So you have, let's say, a creation myth that comes from the biblical tradition, which is the creator God, day one, day two, day three, creating the universe or bringing it into being. But if you turn to and Hindu mythology... And even in, yeah. in his or her own, own image. In Hindu mythology or in Chinese mythology, it's a very different notion. It's not a creation of nothing, of something out of nothing. There was already something, it's a question of integration. Right. Uh, so one crucial distinction that emerges based on the European and the non-European tradition is where do you think of inspiration? Is inspiration something that comes from within or from without or somewhere between the two. Uh, and I think in the case of the European tradition, very clearly drew from the idea of a biblical creator God that gets expressed in the individual soul of the author. So that's one conception. And that's really been the legacy that so we've in inherited. So in that sense, it's uh, almost biblically an act of creation. Absolutely. The act of writing or the act of being an author. So and it's a myth. It. It's a myth of the romantic genius as the source of all invention. The problem is that that's a myth that has been entrenched within, let's say, uh, the intellectual property system or within copyright. So even though copyright deals with a whole range of forms of creation, um, the logic of creation in music, as Rabi will tell us, the logic of creation of a drawing um, or, you know, a poem are very different. They have, there's a different, there are commonalities, but they also have their own imminent logic. The underlying principles from the standpoint of law uh, are they consistent across different forms of creation? So they flatten out the differences by erecting two things. One is the idea of the author. The other is the idea of originality. Right. What they don't allow for is actually creating a system that comes from within the logic of that particular mode of expression. So, Very interesting. Where does inspiration come from, Rabi? Less so for you. I think we'll go into the more autobiographical side maybe a bit later. But if you had to speak on behalf of um, singer-songwriters, peers, and your precedents. So, um, so I'd have to agree with Heidegger that you're born into a certain matrix or a certain a priori set of conditions that um, um, pretty much dictate uh, what you're going to marshal into your own um, individual self and come out with something. So I, I tend to agree with that. But there is indeed um, a peculiarity that I personally find myself in. I'm, uh, I'm within the circumscribes of this um, body made out of uh, flesh and bones. And 
I can point to something of an eye. It uh, it may evaporate when it's uh, when it's questioned a little too much, but for for our interaction here right now, or for ninety nine percent of all interaction at the level of um, uh, normal human cognition, there is something that I think constitutes an eye, and uh, the inspiration is felt therein. It's I I receive it. I'm sure it is processed through my cognition. It's, is that is that conscious, um, or is that is that aware of itself? How aware is it? How self absorbed is it? I if I must uh, uh, reference um, my own self, then it is indeed conscious. Uh, to what extent is it conscious? I can't really be certain, um, but um, I find myself wanting to express something and I don't even know what to express and I find myself banging away at the keyboard or strumming away on the guitar and uh, it's like I, I try to get into some sort of, um, I try to trip, I try to churn and I find, I, I, I'm just aware that there is something that I, I need to deliver and and that is, um, uh, and that is delivered through a conscious um, attempt um, at bringing that about it and manifesting that. So, um, I and what's do... the what's the imagery? Do you feel like you bring um, you bring something out of yourself, or you feel like you're assembling something on a? I I do feel I'm uh, synthesizing something. I don't uh, feel like it's, uh, um, but the very organization of it is unique to me. I. Um, it's a bit like um, anyone can create um, n number of things out of um, just, sand by just, the seashore. Yeah. So the very particular design uh, or the very particular arrangement of that is is the only thing that I can lay claim to. So I find myself um, marshalling um, primarily the the linguistic. Um, grid and through that i find there are ideas therein which i um that what do you mean by linguistic grid so uh, for instance i'm i'm here today and i need to make sense of it and we are here and i'm speaking in english which is my second language at best i um i don't uh, lay claim to uh, being able to convey any great emotionality through this language. So I need to retreat to a safe place where I, I'm certain of uh, what I'm saying. So that usually happens to be my own language. So I would take um, the raw material from this conversation here and now, for instance, and retreat to my sanctuary of uh, my language and try to uh, come up with something that agrees with me uh, cognitively and at a deeper level. So for you in that process, the product that is being given shape to is a linguistic product. It's not emotive or affective. Of course, it's all of those things as well. But you... you Linguist, language is the primary uh, source by which I am able to connect with emotionality, usually. Um, emotions, I find... Um, you go via words to emotions. I am um, not... Sure. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I find that they tend to be a little bit more authentic. They 
they tend to um, be um, infused with a resonance, which I don't think uh, quite happens to how I communicate the same emotions in another language. And have you observed patterns in your own process of creating? Like, do the tunes come first, the words come first, the... Like, well, what's the sequence? Because the uh, eventual thing is like a few strands put together. and I think initially there is the need to express um, a broad idea. For instance, uh, um, if um, um, usually something around me triggers me, um, it could be... Uh, a political act, it could be a social act, it could be an emotional act. It's something that happens to me emotionally. Um, it could be, but all of these um, produce uh, an emotion, a specific emotion, and a need to convey that emotion. Um, and then, once I'm certain that, uh, I, I sit with it a few days, and uh, if it's a recurrent a desire, then I know for a fact that it is something that indeed needs to be expressed, and it will, um, it will last. It will, um, it will stand the course of time. And then, I, I try to sit down with a notepad like this, and I, I try to write uh, approximately one page, and I try to, uh, I write in, not. Um, uh, rhyme or anything. These are notes or lyrics? These are notes. So I try to write in pretty plain terms what I am feeling. And in this case, you're dragging Gurumukhi, like in your language, like um, Punjabi. It, it usually happens both in Gurmukhi and English. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I find there are certain um, emotions which uh, do not have an accurate representation in Punjabi or vice versa. But usually it's English to Punjabi. So what I find then is that I need to locate that specific emotion and then trip to it. And usually by trip, I mean I, I put on a piano or a keyboard and I try to get into that state and I try to... You set it to music? I, I don't set it to music. I start banging away. I've... Um, and then you look for that resonance. I, I try to look for that first one chord or two chords or a chord progression. And um, once that happens, then uh, I try to complete the line or the emotion. Then I try to put some words to that line. And at this stage, the lyrics are not in place. At, at that point, lyrics are not there. And, um, um, and soon I find... and. Actually, I can't really be certain what comes yeah, first. So all I can tell you that uh, this this act of banging away on an instrument and trying to be very aware of that specific emotion usually brings about um, uh, the emergence of of an idea and. Uh, I am not sure whether it's the lyrics first or the chord progression first, but it happens. And sometimes it um, they happen very close to each other. They're twins, so I don't really know what comes first. And at some, they I could bobs, be co-turbans. Maybe they come together. Um, they don't come together usually. <laughs> but oh. um, so when that happens, I like to come up with a line, and um, and then I need to just um, enjoy that, relish that for. A day. 
I, it's not a process. So there you're the reader of your own creation. At, at that point, I am the consumer. Consumer. I'm, I'm, I'm just tripping. I'm, I'm just a fan at that point. It's um, so, and usually I find that if I like what I did the previous day, I usually give it 24 hours. Do you need hours. to be a good listener? Um, Do you need to be a connoisseur of music to be I a think, good writer yourself? I, I think the way music? I'm doing it, I'm listening inside. So it's a, it's another, it's an even more interior act than listening. Um, it's almost as if I'm bypassing my... Um, it's a reflective state. Uh, oral uh, cognitive uh, apparatus. And I'm, I'm just, I'm listening with some inner ears. And if I like, if I... If the idea doesn't completely sound, um, you know, watery by the next morning, I know I have something there. And then I build on it. And then I go to town on it. Um, then I know it, it's it got some uh, um, creative worth. Um, I think it's a good stage to pause at. Aaron, you've heard both of them by now. Philosophers, what do they have to say about this act of creation, the mode of the author, the author function, why has it been a problem for philosophers over the centuries, maybe not going back all the way, but at least from the standpoint of modern or modern Western philosophy or otherwise? It's been a problem because there are two kinds of experience that uh, at least Western philosophy, I don't know much about Indian traditions, but Western philosophy has been beholden to. It's been beholden to the ancient Greeks, and it's been beholden to the Judeo-Christian tradition. So as Lawrence rightly pointed out, it's the Judeo-Christian tradition that begins with a creator God, yeah. a God who creates. But there is no such creator God in the ancient Greeks. Yeah. Nature is not created. Yeah. Nature is just a process of infinite change. You know, that's what the Greeks called fusis. Fusis. From where we get the subject physics. Right. You know? So Aristotle and Plato, Homer, they don't know of any creator god. One god who ends up creating the whole of existence. So in Plato's dialogues especially, Artistic creativity Which is why the Greeks had many gods. Yeah, they probably had many gods for that reason. Also, the Greeks don't have a fixed distinction between humanity and divinity. Yes. You know, uh, they understand the distinction, but they are also problematizing it at the same time. And so there is a kind of an irreverence in the Greeks and towards their gods. And they're also somehow closer together than the other traditions. There's an interesting text that was written by a colleague of Michel Foucault. I forget the name now. And the title of the book was Did the Greeks Believe in Their Gods? <laughs> One can't say this about the Judeo-Christians. Right. The question doesn't arise. you know. But right. for the Greeks, it does arise. Did they really believe in their gods? Did they take them seriously? Right. Because there is a kind of an irreverence that is written into their behavior, if you may put it that way. yeah. So these are the two traditions that have somehow influenced what we call the West. But does is nature godlike? When you call something nature or fusio, is that serving the god function or no, not really? 
Yeah, you can say it serves the God function in the sense of being a source of infinite variety. Uh, but there is also something cyclical to it, you see. Yeah. So, yeah, as a source of variety, as a repository of richness, of course, you know, there's something divine about nature. But gods and human beings, as it were, inhabit nature. You see? Yeah. Um, no, the interesting point is, if you look at Plato, and if you look at the dilemma that he faces about artistic creation, yeah, on the one hand, Plato recognizes that the artist is beholden to an experience, is beholden to a knowledge that one cannot arrive at through human reason alone. Yeah. So in this sense, the artist kind of transcends human reason by securing a knowledge. Why experience? Why you can say an experience. Uh, Plato uses the word thea moira, which means divine disposition, yeah, or a divine gift, you know. So it is as it were. The artist receives something. You need to you be know? in a state to be able to receive it. You need to be in a state of absolute passivity, oh. which is not possible for all of us human beings <laughs> because we come in our own way, you know. So there is, as it were, a kind of a, an awe in the face of the artist because he is privy to a knowledge that human beings by their reason alone cannot arrive at. But at the same time, there is also a suspicion of the artist. And the suspicion is because the artist, unlike the craftsman, unlike the demiurgos, the artist is incapable of understanding his or her own creation. So Socrates in the Apology, he says, the poets are able to produce great things. But when they produce these great things, they are not themselves. <laughs> yeah, they're possessed. And so they are unable to kind of understand what they create. You can't say that for science. But he says, anyone on the street, however, he says, is able to give a better understanding of a poem than the poet himself or the poet herself. This is not the case with the craftsmen. Yeah. The craftsmen are able to, as it were, tell you how is it that they were able to produce the because chariot. Because that's more a matter of technique. It's a more a matter of technique. It's techne, techne. versus poesis. poesis. But at the same time, Plato also tells us that there is, as it were, a poetic element even in techne. Yeah. It's not totally devoid of techne. Sometimes they fuse together. All right. So because of the fact that there is, as it were, a lack of reason, you know, a surrender of reason in the moment of art or in the moment of artistic creation, Plato foresees great political dangers in art. He has seen, for example, how Greek tragedy has been manipulated by politicians to produce propaganda for war. You know, so he's very kind of 
suspicious of art because in art he sees a way of arriving at a knowledge that we human beings are incapable of by ourselves. But at the same time, there is also this danger of being able to arouse emotions in others. Being able to arouse emotions in others and thereby take them away from their reason. Yeah. But is a poet an author? A poet is an author. If by author you mean, as they're, Lawrence they're... rightly pointed out, the origin of something, right? But how do we understand this origin is kind of the philosophical problem. Is it a moment of pure passivity or is it a moment of absolute activity? Because the Judeo-Christian tradition tells us it's a moment of absolute activity. Yeah. You know, God is pure act. Yeah. You know? The act Whereas of creation. Yeah, as an agency. Agency. Whereas for the ancient Greeks, it's a moment of pure passivity. And if you look at how Rabbi very beautifully talked about the artistic process, you can see that somehow it is a very bizarre and interesting mix of those two moments. Yeah. You know, the, the tripping, as Rabbi talked about, is a moment of passivity. But at the same time, the writing that Rabbi talked about, writing in a page, you know, having some lyrics, you know, having an idea, being able to, if I may say, map an emotion, what is an a idea? sentiment to an idea. An idea is something that can be articulated, something that can be communicated. Something that can be experienced? Something that can be understood. Understood. More than just experienced. I can understand Rabi's lyrics. You know, I can understand Rabi's lyrics and that is, why do I understand them? Because there is a certain universality to it. Anyone who understands can understand Rabi's lyrics. So we all have a capacity to understand. But we are not sure whether all of us feel in exactly the same way Rabi's lyrics. You know? So, of course, there is a feeling. Feelings are universal. We all feel happy. We all feel sad. We all feel a spectrum. But a we don't know whether we feel the same feeling. We, we do feel the same feeling, but we don't know whether we feel it the same way. Or with the so same that is why certain songs move us a lot more than certain other songs. So I'll give you an interesting anecdote here. When Franz Schubert, towards the end of his life, composed what was known as the Winter Riser, this was a set of poems written by a now obscure author, you know. Uh, Schubert provided lyrics for it. Sorry, he didn't provide lyrics for it. He, he provided music it. for it. Yeah. So he composed it into song. And he also kind of ordered the poems in his own way, you know. So he plays these poems out. He sings them out and he plays them out to his friends, his very close friends. And one of his closest friends goes by the name of Schober. And Schobert tells Schubert, you know, these songs did not really do it for me. You know, they are too bleak. The only song I really liked was the song about the lemon tree. You know, and Schubert tells him, you wait a while. You will also feel the same as I feel. And you will also love these songs in the way that I feel. 
you know so the feelings are the same the intensity is different you know and we can all maybe arrive at that intensity if we give the song a chance you see that is why art makes demands on us yeah you know and true art makes great demands on us and true art can't be consumed passively exactly that is the difference between commodity the dangers of commodification because it it gives the it makes consumer out of the illusion it basically removes from the consumer the responsibility of to reflection. do something yeah it gives the consumer a pass it does not make any demands on the consumer it's user great, friendly yes great <laughs> art on the <laughs> other hand makes demands on the listener you know and by making demands on the listener it's trying to transform the listener for the better you know or for the worse maybe but for the better okay, at least say. it has the ability to do something is is a, is a passive poet an author a i'm not quite has... sure what a passive poet is um but you know this question of the active and the passive and i like the way that arun characterized rabi's you know account as something that falls between the two there's a very beautiful account that the actor ian mckellen uh gives of um, a music performance that he heard and he says you know what was really challenging about the music performance was that you weren't sure whether the pianist was taking the music out of the, the piano or putting the music into the piano <laughs> uh, and i think that there's something there in terms of you know this question of the active or the passive poet an image that what comes to mind immediately is samuel taylor coleridge um having kind of consumed opium and writing you know kublai khan right um and you know this is a great story so here is this great you know in zanadu that kublai khan a stately pleasure dome decree where alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man and he's tripping yeah and and then unfortunately for the world and for all of us there's a knock on the door <laughs> and the poem ends because you know he's taken out of that trance yeah and i think that there is something in that image of how one thinks of an essential mystery to the act of creation in which you are simultaneously of course a participant even as you are simultaneously a medium and i think this the difference between or an initiator at least at least, yeah, at least a medium yeah so the difference i think between this idea of a certain model which is the judeo christian idea of the creator takes away in a very crucial way from let's say what the ancient greeks had or what in ancient indian philosophy has which is the idea of inspiration yeah. right so for the greeks it was the muse or the muses yeah and that word is actually beautiful because the idea of the muses very literally etymologically gives rise to the word mystery yeah uh, which is an opening of the word and and you know rabi talked about where he he said you know emergence and i think emergence is a great way of thinking about this because if one were to turn for example to the chinese philosophical tradition uh, in 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 dao one of the presumptions is how do you think of the relationship between nothingness and thingliness and the word which is crucial which is you know underpins the entire philosophical tradition is of course emergence it's the emergence of the million things or the thousand things around you and their disappearance so when you look at for example a cloud passing through as one often does in the mountains or in the hills uh, there is a moment in which something is revealed and then something is 
concealed. And it's this act and the relationship between revelation and concealment that contains an essential mystery to the idea of creation. One of the problems, I think, with the modern invention of authorship in the way that it did was to actually take away the mystery of creation. And there is that tension, I think, that every creator, and Rabi can you know, confirm this, faces, which is you're simultaneously in the push and the pull of the act of creation, uh, which is an essential mystery, and a livelihood based on the act of creation, which is grounded by the logic of the market, the which logic is, which of... Which is work. Which is work, yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is that it's not romanticize, you know, the, the, the poverty of the creator. No, not at all. I mean, one recognizes the very practical kind of, you know, and especially in today's time, that it's very difficult if it's not within the logic of patronage or within the logic, you know, of, let's say, a, a dual life where you have a, a life as a, a banker in the day and you're writing the wasteland in the evening as Eliot did. Yeah. If you actually want to live off, let's say, the act of creation, it's a it's a tough balance to make. But there's and something that's in that where, tension. That's why the idea of property is a fruit of labor. Oh, yeah. I mean, so so if one had to look at that in terms of where this comes from, one of the problems is that, you know, the philosophically, again, where intellectual property emerges is through, let's say, the thought of a liberal philosopher like John Locke. Yeah. And Locke, the contribution of Locke to, was a metaphor, the fruit of your own labor. Yeah. Right. And that fruit of your own labor is a metaphor from land. It's yeah. from literally from the idea of produce. Uh, the danger with that, of course, is that you mix the realm of property and land in the realm of the tangibles with the domain of the intangibles, which doesn't necessarily work in that same within that same ambit. But what Locke did very crucially was he brought together two things. For Locke, actually, it doesn't begin with the tree. Locke said, you know, why are you an owner? Of yourself? Why are you the owner of anything that you create? And for him, it was to do with a theory of personality and personhood. Identity is self. Identity. You're the, you are the owner of your own identity and your conscience, consciousness because of the interplay of memory. So the act of creation becomes one where your personality as something that, but that you presupposes own, a continuity to self. So that's the, the circular relationship that Locke establishes between property and personhood. So you are who you are because you are your own person. You are your own person because you are the owner of yourself. And this is actually and you're the quite owner unique. of your own personhood. Yeah, you're quite unique in English that self and own are so proximately linked that even if you were to turn to a nearby language like French, you may not be able to find an equivalent. So you could find the moi and soi for the self. But own doesn't quite translate. It has to be translated into propre. Or you have to think about Hindi. When I thought about what I would imagine to be, let's say, a translation of something like my own, if you were to think about meri apne or mera apna, the apnapan there is not a relationship of exclusivity as a boundary yeah. establishment of ownership as property, yeah. as much as an, a relational proximity that you have. So I think this is where, you know, in a way, when we speak about authorship, the it's not 
to turn to what the French post-structuralists initially announced, which is the grand death of the author. Yeah. Right. They said, okay, let's say that with the birth of the author, you have the with the birth of the reader, you have the death of the author, and we don't need authorship. No, I think that there is something that authorship fulfills and that we need, and is very crucial. And but what exactly that is is really the question, because for the entire realm of law, it just became about ownership claims. Whereas in someone like Foucault, there is an interesting way in which Foucault says that to be an author is not merely to own a work. It is also to own up to a work. So there is an ethical relationship that is established by the author function, a so to speak. A position of responsibility almost. Of and, the... you know, entering as we all are in a world where increasingly a lot is going to be written by chat GPT. This question of what it means to tether words to a person, to tether or to hinge words to someone who is accountable for those words becomes a re renewed kind of, you know, um, uh, matter of urgency. Where are you on this, Rabi? This question of, like, can you say electronic music apart very easily? Can you, are you able to sense a person on the other side of composed music? Um, how important is the person, um, the legal person, the, the individual, the individuals, the people? Um, see, I, I think uh, with electronic music, um, the personhood vanishes uh, somewhat for me. Um, I mean, if uh, there's only so much of personality that can come through, you know, the same groove in 4x4 four four at 120 BPM and some uh, RPGation set to it, um, that you could qualify as, um, you know, uniquely human. Um, as somebody, as an insider, I am uh, sometimes... Um, Does given, music need to be human? Um, for me, if I was a machine, maybe with a neural link and, uh, <laughs> you know, titanium uh, hypothalamus, maybe I wouldn't really care. But um, so far, um, it's important for me... Has EDM ever moved you? Yeah. EDM has indeed moved me, but uh, good EDM, good any genre, will have a human heart or does tend to have a human heart for me. Um, yeah, but I tend to agree with the, what he's saying, and I never thought about it um, in the same way that um, that indeed I would agree that uh, authorship is indeed responsibility. It is indeed uh, an ethical responsibility. And... Um, Maybe there are other dimensions to it, but this one seems uh, uh, quite vital uh, to my mind right now. Um, I I stand by every syllable, every consonant that I've uh, uttered or written, and I'm not sure uh, what kind of a world it would be if Chat GPT was uh, um, creating all the art for us, all the lyrics for us, and. Uh, um, you know, devoid of responsibility. Um, is there a lot that you reject of your own creation that doesn't see the eye and that doesn't see the light of the day, doesn't make it out into the world? I I, uh, I edit all the time. Um, actually, last night I was sitting with my producer and we were just, uh, we decided to, I, I gave a mini concert to him of all, all the stuff we rejected. Um, yeah, I reject a whole bunch of, I think I, 
it, it could easily be three times uh, what I ever commit to recording. So I reject a whole bunch of stuff. Is there stuff that you like, but you know that others won't, and therefore you reject for market reasons? Um, that may well be a part of it, but I think it's a small part. Uh, the The big part is I find um, um, I find something um, uh, not entirely convincing about uh, a song. I sometimes I feel. I'm overdoing the lyrics. Sometimes I feel I'm overproducing. Sometimes uh, it feels. Um, do you feel? Do you sometimes feel like you're copying yourself? All the time. Um, because I've, the moment you have a signature style, um, yeah, and you probably do. Uh, I I do. So what I I um, I try to shake things up for myself. I I started um, uh, recording a lot on uh, piano. Uh, simply because piano is not my primary instrument and uh, it, it tends to uh, prod me in different directions. So I end up doing that. Um, yes, I have to. Um, else it just sounds the same and you, you um, some of the, the greatest uh, wake-up calls for me have been uh, moments where reviewers have been able to point out certain similarities in chord progression and tempo, which I did not spot my, right. uh, my own self. Um, and um, and I can totally empathize with uh, Coldplay when they went to Brian Eno and, um, um, you know, uh, YouTube's producers to record, um, um, you know, their Grammy, multiple Grammy winning um, album after uh, the very successful um, repetition of um, uh, the first album, which was the second album. So they produced two albums in the same style and a New York Times wrote an editorial saying that these guys are just rehashing themselves and they say, they woke up and said, uh, whoa, I'm doing, I'm indeed doing that and they wrote a groundbreaking new album. I wish there was something like that in India. Uh, but I can... By which you mean good criticism? Good criticism. We don't have good... Uh, there's a very little credible music press of notes right what, now. What, is, what makes a good critic? Uh, somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, I, I get the sense when somebody is talking about my music and they're able to review it from a place of depth um, and most importantly, some interiority. Um, then you understand that this person is indeed. Um, you mean when it's, it's, it's an authentic. It's an authentic opinion. He's not. Um, yeah. Uh, it's not like he's uh, plagiarizing some somebody else. Yeah. Um, and there have been a few, and I've benefited uh, uh, a great deal from those. Arun, is plagiarism a crime? It's come up a couple of times, like as an ethicist, moral philosophy standpoint, or even otherwise legal philosophy standpoint. What is plagiarism? Because um, the moment you create the role or the position of an author, somehow some copying is good and inspiration and some copying is wrong and unlawful. So what's happening there? See, there is a certain economic model, right, that undergirds artistic creation in our world, right? And that economic model is capitalism. So, capitalism is about ownership, ownership of property, right? And so you turn the product of creation also into a property. You know, that's how capitalism understands anything, 
understands it only in terms of property. So when you turn something into property, an act of creation into property, you do that in order to provide remuneration. You know, that's how capitalism understands remuneration, right? So when someone else is basically kind of plagiarizing, yeah, it now becomes an act of stealing. Yeah. Because you have reduced the the creative product into property. And so when I plagiarize, I'm also stealing. You know? But this is because, as I said, there is a specific, you know, economic model that undergirds, you know, these relations, you know, uh, between the artist and uh, his sources of income as but an aren't, artist. Aren't, in, in some way, and at least for non-fiction, aren't all books made up of other books that come prior to them in some shape and form to a very large extent? Um, that's, because... the point I'm, that's the point I'm getting to, right? So, um, this particular economic model, it comes with this presupposition that an artist is like a standalone node unrelated to everything else. Because, because that's the only she, way yeah. you can make sense of the property relationship. Yeah. It's as Lawrence said, between the self and the property, right? And it's a peculiar relationship, you know. The fruit of labor, as Lawrence talked about, also involves a certain externalization of what is inner. Plagiarism is an act of labor as well. Yeah. No? So so when you are so when you're producing something, what are you doing? You are externalizing your spiritual power. Right. So for example, when you produce a book or when you write something, something inner has now become something outer. Right? And the same logic can be used for agriculture. You know, you are doing something to the land as a result of which it now produces crops, right? So you have invested your inner power, you know, into something outside. You have externalized your, what is inner to you, you know? So there is an interesting, if I may say, uh, implication to this that property is not just material. There is a spirituality to property itself, you know, because you can always invest some of your inner spirit into something outside and thereby make it something created, make where, it something where, more where, than where, what where it is. Where does philosophy stand? Does philosophy, because philosophy is not art. Philosophy is not art. So philosophical texts, are they? do they have the same valence or do they have the same status as, like you refer to Homer, his Iliad or other things? No. Um, I would like to think more generally here, you know, you know, even let's let's kind of for a moment set aside the distinction between philosophy, art and science, you know. Let's think about just creativity or creating something. Like you said, you know, I cannot create something without kind of having imbibed certain things as an individual without being influenced by things. I am shaped by the world, by the world, by society, and I become something as a result of that. And so when I produce something, what I have 
imbibed, what has formed me is also kind of reflected in my artwork. I think that's what you mean when you yes. say that in every book, there is the books that have been written in the past. Yes. Because I'm not an atom. You know, I'm not something, a standalone node. You know, I am, as it were, a product, you know, of society, of history. You're not a monad to use. Exactly. I have a history. Yeah. And that history is reflected in whatever I produce, you know. But at the same time, of course, it is I who am producing it. So the history that is reflected in my work is something very different from the way maybe that history could be reflected in someone else's work, you know. But are the sciences different? Where are they on this question of property, creation, author? How is this science different from the arts? On this notion, on this question. So in the case of the sciences, the sciences are products of complete understanding. So, you know, I can basically do everything that Newton did after kind of understanding, grasping what Newton his understood. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Whereas I can kind of read all of Homer and still not do what Homer did. I can read all of Shakespeare and still not become a Shakespeare. You know, whereas when it comes to science, the transmission is absolute. You know, I get everything Homer wrote. And it is because I do that, and it is because it's possible for me to do that, that you can have, as it were, all of these applications Is that of because science. art has an element of style? Like, what is it that's absent here or present there? What is, you know, Kant, for instance, I think he's an important philosopher to refer to in this case, is that in the case of science, what is at play is mainly the understanding. Hmm. You know, and understanding so is the ability to produce concepts. You know, and concepts can be transmitted, you know, in equations, you know, they can be transmitted in systems, etc., etc. Whereas in the case of art, you're not merely communicating a concept. You know, you're communicating something that is, in essence, you can say, incommunicable, although that is a matter of speaking, hmm. you know. So, what is at play in art is the imagination. Right? And all of us have different levels of imagination. We have the same amount of understanding, you can say, but we have different levels of imagination. You know, And that is why I want to say this. I want to say that a good listener has to have the capacity to recreate. You know, It's not merely passive. There is a recreation that is going on in the case of a work of art. You know, when I, for example, am reading Shakespeare or I, for example, am listening to Rabbi Shergil, I am recreating what he created. I am recreating for myself what Shakespeare created. And so the relationship between an artist and the audience so is a very special kind of relationship. It's a little bit different from, you know, the relationship between a scientist and the fellow scientists or the scientists who come after that. Because here there is, as it were, simply a transmission of 
concepts and understanding. Whereas what is happening in art is some kind of recreation. Where, are, where are you on this author-reader axis? So what I death would, of author, death of reader, birth of author, birth of reader. See, the death of the author is basically trying to emphasize. You know, these postmodernists were basically trying to emphasize that we must kind of, you know, take a hard look, you know, at the individuality of the author. And we have to try to understand the self of the author as a broadened self. And if you understand the self of the author as a broadened self, then as you rightly pointed out, it includes many selves. Selves who are a part of the author's history. So in this sense, yeah, it's very difficult to speak of the author as an individual. You know? And that is why Foucault talks about the author as a function. You know, the function here meaning that there is something broad, you Does... know, than merely an individual at the heart of what is known as the author. You know, that's what these people are interested in. But I want to kind of say a little bit about the relationship between the reader or the listener and the artist. You know, this is a special relationship and it's a relationship I think that Rabbi has also pointed out in today's kind of ultra-consumerist society, we have kind of tended to You're kind a of romantic, overlook. Aaron. Not necessarily <laughs> romantic. I'm not saying that we should go back to the past. But I'm saying that there are certain elements, you know, that we would, it would behoove us to kind of pay attention to. You know, that is to say, the relationship between uh, a listener and that of an artist, you can almost say is a, is a relationship between fellow artists. Because there is, as it were, an element of recreation in a good listener. A good listener has to recreate, and that's what Rabbi talked about. You know, a critic must be able to, in some sense, recreate that moment in order to be able to tell, in order to be able to review a work of art properly. What is, uh, what's the status of the listener in your, in your mind? The status of listener is, um, um, is an exalted one. It's, uh, it's almost an extension of uh, my own ego. Um, I find, um, uh, in my mind, I idolize him as somebody capable of receiving or um, somebody that um, said, who would reveal something to me uh, if I shared something with him. Um, you think of listening as a somewhat creative enterprise? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, um, if I uh, if I refer to Dylan's lyrics or Knopfler's lyrics or Sting's lyrics, I think um, there's stuff in there that um, uh, I think I could unpack a little bit more than them. And uh, they would also find um, I've been... Um, uh, surprised by some other people's take on my own lyrics. So uh, that was the first time I said, whoa, it's uh, it's just not me writing this thing. We have we've written this thing together. Um, I've just been the primary instrument. Uh, but I think um, um, the authorship of this in some way also goes to the society at large, the, the listenership and, uh, and the um, for instance, Tere Ben has been, um, I wrote it for my father. 
almost nobody uh, refers to it um, in that capacity they you all know, people tell you that it. they cry when they listen to it yeah they do and um, some people most of the people i would say think it's for a lover yeah. you know um but um so so that is proof positive that um the um there's something the, generalizable there something no, universal that, that the um that the uh, uh, creation does not stop it's constantly getting recreated it's getting recreated as long as um uh, people are going to have um different experiences and have a different lens through which to receive that um, peculiar music i'm sure uh, dylan and his grid perceived like rolling stone in another way i living in bombay walking the same streets and observing it's not the uh, same rolling stone it's i i receive it in a different way in so way. so that song he's right it gets recreated in a uh, in a new capacity you know, with subsequent listeners and it lives on as an organic thing in the world yes, yes, so it it's always there how how does one conceive of multiple authors um, like did whatever bath did or foucault did or derrida did Did that do anything to the world of law, to legal jurisprudence, to uh, maybe they didn't run into each other? But in a biographical sense, my interest in some of these areas emerged because of a parallel life I was leading. <laughs> I was in law school on the one hand, and I was doing an English honors program. And in the English honors program, I was discovering Foucault, Barthes, and discovering you know the death of the author, the fun- yeah. author function, etc. and in copyright law class i found that the author was not only alive alive and well and, and ruling the roost yeah yeah <laughs> so it's this paradox and i think in some ways i think the mistaken assumption of the metaphor of the death of the author was to do away with authorship i think it wasn't i think the idea was to pluralize so that was an error and to multiple yeah the idea of the author and here i think the word copy is quite crucial because at the heart of copyright at the heart of a management in a certain idea of creativity is the idea of the copy right um, but the copy here is a diminishment a copy is seen to be a dilution of the original it's supposed to be some kind of an impoverishment of an original act but if you look at the root word etymologically of the word copy it comes to us from copia which is also the root word for copious yes it's Cornucopia. also for Cornucopia. copulation yeah it's about production reproduction yeah and reproduction yeah. so what initially was the context in a way of a certain kind of a fecundity and of a richness of the copy uh, gets converted over a period of time into being an impoverishment and i think much of what we are thinking about here today is really how do we in a way bring back and i think the role of the listener in the way that rabi said you know it's it's a pivotal role uh, there's a beautiful line of a poem by by i think it is by edwin morgan where he says two girls discover the secret of life in a sudden line of poetry which i the poet didn't know <laughs> you know and i think that there's something there that yeah. the i how do we think about this relationship between it could be accidentally accidental the original and the copy is not necessarily a hierarchical relationship of a taking away from as much as it is an addition to and i think the best parable for this is a 
very short story by Jorge Luis Borges when he writes a story of this character called Pierre Mernard. And Pierre Mernard has come to the conclusion that Cervantes is the greatest writer in the history of letters. <laughs> and there is no need to improve on it. Yeah. He's already done and written the greatest novel, Don Quixote. Yeah. So Mernard decides that he wants to reproduce Don Quixote, not to write an adaptation, not to write a cheap version of to it. To write it word for he word. He wants to word, write it word for word. And he doesn't. He writes it word for word. And then he compares the two. And in a stroke of genius, Borges says, Cervantes had written, let's see, as an example, the cat sat on the mat. But when Pierre Mernard looked at what he had written, Mernard, on the other hand, had written, the cat sat on the mat. Yeah. So what is repetition here? Yeah. Is repetition the repetition of sameness or is repetition the creation of difference? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is, you know, one of the things of how, how do we think about this complicated idea of creation? That whole idea of meaning being sense plus reference. Absolutely. So the sense is always changing, even if you're referring to the same thing. I like this story from music in India, which, uh, you know, in an interview with Kumar Shanu, because, you know, there was a time, the T-series moment, where a lot of these version recordings were being created for, you know, economic reasons. But you also had a lot of singers who were seen to be copiers of the greats. Yeah. And Kumar Shanu was known to be, you know, the, a person who copied Kishore Kumar. Right. And someone asked Kumar Shanu and they said, you know, what is this? You know, where is your originality? Why are you always copying Kishore Kumar? And Kumar Shanu said, you know, music is my religion. And in religion, one tries to get as close to God as possible, not as far away from, from him. And Kumar <laughs> and Kishore Kumar is God for me. <laughs> you know, so there's an there's a interesting thing there. It might be at one level, mundane level, be read as someone is defending their own. Is a myth? I think it's a necessary myth. Necessary myth. Yeah. That's a very good point. I think it's like with all myths. Myths are not about whether something is real or not in terms of whether it's factual or but not. But whether it's useful or not. But whether it's true. And to that extent, I think the idea of originality is for me you know, a, a holding up to a certain a striving for an individual expression knowing very well that it's almost impossible. Do you feel, Rabi, the need to differentiate yourself every time you're creating music? Yeah. Do you I... feel, like, if you're, of course, familiar with the various musical traditions, you yourselves probably are carrying some lineages forward in some shape and form, uh, but having said all of that, you feel the need to differentiate yourself. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, I find myself um, infused with uh, quite a low form of uh, ego uh, when I'm composing. I'm almost, I don't recognize myself. I'm, I'm not um, a very egotistical guy normally. I might be, but not to my mind. In, in the studio, while I'm working on it, so that's your process of gaining some respect for yourself. Uh, I'm just trying to be on the edge, because um, great point. It's if I'm not if I'm not whipped myself up into a frenzy, and absolutely on the edge, um, chances are I would just uh, produce uh, balderdash. 
Um, so just to, uh, out of respect for creation, uh, I just I just need to just wake myself up. I need to be up there. I I'm I'm speaking to people. I don't want to waste anyone's time. I don't want to waste my time. So I I become this egotistical guy um, for that brief uh, period, and I find people who don't do that don't tend to produce stuff which means anything to me. Uh, most of the people. Who's, so it's it's a dance between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. You yeah, know? It's both a, order and chaos. So you have to create, to even get to an abstraction, you have to first create a form. Um, so I, I end up doing that because I find um, the ideas I want to convey are abstract, distilled and abstract. The act of distillation is... Um, is a very structured act. Is so, that a process of uh, removing, um, it's, adding, distilling? Do your compositions become more and more sparse as you go? Um, more the, economical? I, I don't think it's a... Um, the nature of the composition is immaterial. It's, um, that is a sort of emotional state you are in and then you... Or you just feel like doing something overproduced or something underproduced, something sparse. Do you fine-tune a lot? Yeah. I uh, endlessly, I tweak my lyrics endlessly, I tweak my chords endlessly. I, it could take you months to do one song. Not months, but weeks for sure. Um, and then I've, um, even when I'm really close to finishing an idea, I, I file it away and then I start working on something else. I'm at any given time, I'm working on seven, eight ideas. Right. Um, and then I, uh, listen to those ideas again and again. And if they still move me, then they have something that I can um, release or, or work on further. Um, it's it's crucial for so, so just to distill an idea so that it can become um, a valuable abstract mode. So that of, it has some stability. It's st stability. See, a song is is going to connect us, whether we like it or not like it. It's it's the terms of uh, our connection, the agreement uh, between uh, the the creator and the listener, and also between listeners themselves. So I, for one reason or the other, I feel like connecting, I want this connection to be a um, euphonious connection, a, a positive connection. I want some some good to emerge from that. Um, it's it's perhaps a, a low form of artistic ambition, but given the state that I think society is in, I feel like um, uh, connecting people on on some pleasant terms. And to that end, I find that I need to be really structured, really focused, really precise with everything. Um, because it can all come undone. There are songs that I've done uh, which have been panned and very justifiably so. Um, I wrote a song about Sikh history. Um, in my mind, I was writing about Sikh history and it was pointed out to me that it was a very divisive song because it um, it did um, cleave um, 
the mother culture into different entities and i could not but agree with the so i with the effect of it with the effect of it and yeah, factually you may have been accurate i, I may be i may be been accurate i may have even be i i did um, manage to evoke uh, a very emotive response from many people but the larger effect on on society um i mean i was um, a little disturbed by the implications of it myself and i felt it and um well that was a mistake and it just goes to uh, you file it away and you work on it and you tighten the process a little more and then you learn and i i find that i have to be my standards have to be um, really watertight or they can never ever be entirely watertight but it's um, it's always there i the the initial does that come in the way of experimentation does life come in the way no does this uncompromising attitude come in the way of experimenting with uh, a form of playfulness with and so on um well, i know these are not i think i or. think the uh, the dionysian must come first and mm. then the apollonian can take over i think um the f- i just when i'm tripping i don't have any template i yeah. don't have any standard i i can say the most absurdest of thing the foulest and vilest of stuff and i just need to get it out there that's the reason i am tripping i'm i'm whipping myself into a frenzy i'm banging away that i'm a jarwa in um, in the andamans i'm i'm just banging away and hopefully out of all that uh, unbridled banging away something of value has come out of my unconscious um and uh, and then yeah. you examine it the next day with a little bit of structure and if it's there then the apollonian goes then to you work. examine the debris and see whether something of value is there yes 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 <laughs> pretty much yeah lawrence where are we headed what's the future where is all this going i'm sure you know the answer please share it with us quickly <laughs> Um, I I've been lucky in, in that I typed this question out yesterday on ChatGPT which is why I know the answer. Oh, I'm very <laughs> pleased. No, I mean yeah so I think um this is an interesting point that that we're all at. Um I think all of us are now, you know, revisiting this question of who is a creator, what is creation in the context of course of the rise of artificial intelligence which has an enormous enormous capacity not merely for assembling information together but for actually participating in what traditionally would have been understood as the act of creation and i think it so has why been can't so why can't we let chat gpt trip to use no we we, okay. we certainly can so i'm not a technophobe in 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 that i'm i'm scared about it uh, i'm marked by a certain ambiguity because i think one crucial underlying reason for why we have asked many of these questions true forms like copyright etc has actually been a very fundamental idea that to be a homo faber yeah to be a maker yeah to be a creator has been essential for defining what it means in some ways to be human yeah um and this conceit of the human as you know possessing a set of skills and qualities that were unique is a conceit that has now been challenged in every realm yes. whether in the realm of language in the realm of emotion in the realm of affect it's been challenged it's now of course being challenged very strongly in the realm of creation but i think the question doesn't go away 
And I think that the part of the reason why one is foreseeing the future is that we are asking this question again, crucially, of what it means to understand the lines uh, that has separated the realm of the human from the non-human and the human from the machine at a time where the cybernetic entanglement of species, of machines and of bodies are all happening in too rapid a pace. So I think, you know, to when Ravi spoke about earlier the modulation that, you know, let's say is possible in music, uh, I was told just yesterday of uh, experience of a recording studio where people have been told, aap jo bhi gana chate hai, aap ga wo baad ne hum log improve kar lenge ya correct kar lenge. You know, so, so that is something that worries me a little. I'm not entirely sure why. Improving has always been, you know, a necessary kind of striving or an achievement that we've had. But what it does away then is improvisation. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if you, we take it from the realm and of... And what's the of, deeper worry that something human, some some faculty would be lost in the long run? Well, if yes, for me, I would go here by what Marshall McLuhan describes as, you know, a, a kind of, he says, if media is an extension of the self, that the television is an extension of the eye, radio is an extension of the mouth, etc. And it's necessary. We, we live in a post-mediatized world. Sure. But the one thing that he warns us of is auto-amputation. Hmm. He says, what happens when you extend cut your, our own organs. You cut off your own organs and your inability to exercise that organ. And a simple example of that is memory. We know, for example, that uh, at an earlier stage, and all of us are at, at an age where we used to know, let's say, 50 to 100 telephone numbers before the mobile phone came along. With the mobile phone, it's difficult to know more than your own number. You may know one at the most beyond but we that. Now know the old factories, the, you, you don't smell as much as you... As you did earlier, I mean, um, the previous generation of human yeah. beings, the, they could smell a bear from miles away. We don't. Spatial um, memory after Google. We don't know the route because we only know the screen. So in that sense, the worrying thing for me is that if the world of creation has been brought into the machine. But then other kinds of senses might be enhanced. Uh, absolutely. I'm open to that possibility. So it's a yeah. kind of a nev- Where are we headed, Arun? Uh, Yeah, this question of artificial intelligence is a complicated one, you know, because I'm not quite sure as to what exactly constitutes intelligence here, you know. Uh, And if we start kind of doubting the intelligence, you know, then the question is how artificial is it, you know. Because ultimately, you know, we have always produced extensions of ourselves. Yes. This has been the very essence of us human beings. And this Technique, is, you refer to This it. has begun right from the very beginning. Even the act of writing, for instance, is basically extending ourselves. It's a technology. Yeah. So I don't see any fundamental difference happening with the computer or with artificial intelligence. It is for me one with a process that began a long time ago. You know, what is interesting about us human beings is that when we are born, we are born without any purpose. You know, this is the fundamental, I would say, insight of existentialism, (laughs) which I take very seriously. We are not born with a purpose. I'm not born to calculate numbers. I'm not born to write music. I'm not born to produce aeroplanes. I am merely born. 
and I make myself into something. So I don't think we have been able to produce intelligence in the way in which human beings are born. Because when we produce a machine, there is always a use, a purpose implied. It's programmed. Yeah. So even, so I can say that I have a powerful chess playing machine, but I don't see it as an intelligence. It is an extension of my abilities to play chess. What? I have been able to augment my ability to play chess. So therefore, It's not an independent entity. In the same way, chat GPT is just an extension of myself. So therefore, it is able to synthesize very well, you know, what we have acquired over a lot of time. Yeah, please, please. So what does it do to the question of the author? It doesn't do much to the question of the author, according to me. Because like we have been saying, and Lawrence very rightly pointed out, you know, the, the, very, the very understanding of the author as a function you know, or this call for the death of the author is basically to make us recognize that there is a lot that goes into the author, you know, and we need to kind of be aware of what is it that goes into the author. Talk about the plural self, talk about the broad self, talk about the historical self, you know. So there is always more to us than what we think we are, you know, and it is this particular humility that I think will serve us a lot better in the long run. You know, for commercial purposes, for transactional purposes, we can always think of ourselves for as... spiritual in, purposes. We can think of ourselves as nodes, you know. But if we have to be creative beings, if we have to kind of think of ourselves as doing something valuable, meaningful, I think it behooves us to think of ourselves as more than what we think we are. If I can enter this... Here, I'd like to speculate a little bit. And I'd like to imagine that it actually will do something to the idea of the author. Um, and I want to look, for example, at that famous thought experiment that you have, which is, is a monkey with a typewriter right. uh, with infinite time capable of producing a Shakespeare? Uh, there are people who have computationally come to the conclusion that a monkey with a typewriter is not capable of producing Shakespeare, even with a whole series of rapid accidents. I think with the machinic and the algorithmic possibilities that we are, you know, currently seeing and will see in the future, I think that the monkey will be able to produce Shakespeare. Uh, not in a, not in a, in a indexical, you know, literal sense, which is that you produce the whole corpus of something called Shakespeare. But something of similar S something quality, possibly depth, of sophistication, similar genius. Yeah. You know, if um, if if poetry has always been the best words in the best order. A lot of that has also emerged out of contingency. Yeah. Um, so it's not that poets necessarily knew the best words in the best order and you merely have to transcribe them on the page. It's through experimentation, especially with modernist poetry. A lot of it was extremely self-conscious formal experimentation. And I think that if you look, for example, at the kind of poetry generators that have already been there on the internet and multiply their capacities many fold, will we have a scenario in which we have, you know, poems of the genius of, let's say, a Yeats or an Eliot or a Pound um, your, written by machines? Speculation is that My speculation is absolutely yes. the question. Then philosophically is, what do we do with that? 
and how do we live in that kind of learn world. to savor it and i i think that the, that's the fun part that lies ahead you know the question of what does it mean to if actually if it's indeed a product of genius then why not savor it absolutely absolutely so rabi where are we headed i think um, yeah. i'm i'm a, i'm troubled by it i i should say this because i think um fundamentally um chat gpt or um the entire technological uh, project currently it just uh, takes forward the maybe the the indian in me is lost uh, it's just uh, euro modernistic um, uh, assumptions of determinism and uh, reductionism you want uh, some chaos Uh, it's, it's just no um i'll explain uh, the indian conception of self details five layers of existence annamay pranamay manomay vagyanamay anandamay um whereas um, the euro modernistic conception is in, is 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 one of um the cognitive capacities of the brain and memories and um, uh, and everything consciousness is produced by the synapses and um, cognition and artificial intelligence is carrying forward of those assumptions so i am a little bit lost um i mean what happens to um all the other modes of existence um, are they valid is an entire scientific project run entirely by corporates and uh, big money uh, should it be allowed to have its vision of human intelligence roll over almost every other conception that to me is a, a very troubling sign indeed and um, um is artificial intelligence i'm i mean i come back to the same point that i heard it's not i'm i'm just uh, i just heard it here that it's ultimately about uh, the ethicality of it and it's about um, ownership good art extends me uh, i'm not that sure about ai's art extending me i am not capable of that i'll have to do something to my brain some neural link uh, because the the incredible beauty that's going to come out of the project of ai is also going to produce uh, an epic diminution of me um and that to me is um i don't want to live in a world where i'm cared for endlessly i have no agency i'm just looking to uh, a mother algorithm taking care of every need of me um i'm i'm troubled by that um who knows like 10 years later you could be uh, composing something together with an algorithm for all you know i i could be but your uh, anxiety is real i think that's easy my, to see my my um i'm anxious i'm i'm really please yeah i just like to say that the the discussion is very interesting right because when we are producing artificial intelligence so we say we are producing artificial intelligence of so your writing algorithms of your writing codes you know we tend to forget that there is an underlying if i may use the word metaphysics of the human being involved you know we are trying to picture the human being or we are trying to picture human thought in a particular It's way an anthropomorphic exercise it is a, if i may say it is a metaphysical exercise you know and like rabi is rightly pointing out the question what is the human being has not been sorted out and it's certainly not going to be sorted out by a doctor or by a neuroscientist you know because the human being kind of extends to or its reach as a concept extends to everything 
it's also not a fixed notion exactly it's not a fixed notion and so there cannot be any absolute meaning to what the human being would you, is would you counsel rabi to be less anxious i wouldn't counsel rabi to be less anxious i would say rabi's anxieties are justified because what rabi is pointing out is to a kind of a circumscription in the meaning of what it means to be human yeah. you know when we kind of you know unwittingly simply given to i think the rabi is worried about a world run by algorithms where yeah. we have we have i mean even uh, right not necessarily run by algorithms the danger is that we kind of forget the essence of humanity which is the and auto amputation exactly i mean ultimately we are um, <laughs> light seeking heat seeking mammals i mean uh, there is um, it's not rocket rocket science we are um, at some point you'd have to ask what is the need to change the anthropic being to this degree why is this change being brought about is it being brought about by yours and my an organic need for evolution or is it being brought about by big money and uh, armies of destruction and uh, and and halliburton and CIT and MIT and and the need to retain an edge so that one point of view about all human life must trump everything else i mean we've seen this again and again how a country which did not place a surplus at its very core of existence which is ussr was simply competed out of existence um and we are seeing the same process being unleashed again and again so the squeezing of all nature inner and outer by a certain modality of human consciousness is competing everything else out of existence and all we must do is be passive cheerleaders i find that notion a little bit problematic and the indian in me wants to be left alone wants <laughs> um yeah i i want to i really want a trip to vasheshika i really want to see the season change i want to see the eternity of a single day's solar cycle and i want to see myself reflected in in the sun and the moon and everything else around me i've been told that is what the end game of my consciousness is i want to see that it is my anthropology it is my ontology of my consciousness i want that reflected i want that to be left alone i want to trip to my ignorance if i must thou shall be left alone ravi lawrence if last, i can just um, you be end with your last so word so i share you know much of what arun and ravi have said by way of the the anxiety of the unknown um but i want to be able to perceive a livable future and the way that i would go about bringing together two different kinds of traditions of thought would be the following we have always lived with inanimate objects to whom we have infused a certain idea of our humanity and our of our anthropocentric you know nature so if you take for example whether it is dolls puppets gods we've always had you know a way in which the inanimate has we been a way of with meaning like all the pagan cultures yeah have the inanimate has always had a way of helping us address this question of what it means to be human 
So but when it comes to the machine, when it comes to the machine, we somehow hold because back because of its that. immateriality, maybe. Yeah, but so so I think that here might be a, a thing where, you know, if one had to take, for example, animism, uh, which informs much of let's say Eastern yeah. you know, Asian culture, the ability to sense life in a rock, in a river, in moss, um, and that it's a sensibility, and it's let a, that enrich our own sense of what. It means to be human. As yeah, and, to, I, as and I, to I, I, I would like to imagine the possibility that there will be instances in which the machine, like we did in Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey, Hal, takes over. But there are also instances where the machine will be an ally, possibly, in the way that a rock, a stone, etc., are. I don't know. I haven't experienced it yet. But I hold out to the possibility that it might. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank, Thank you. you all. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>